I'm really delighted to be here today with Dr. Jim. Jim Field, who is a cardiologist and has been a regular in this little corner, especially talking with Paul Vanderclay about such things as philosophy and art and drama. And uh, <clears throat> we connected at the Chino conference on this, the quest for a spiritual home. And we thought it would be fun to have a conversation. So Jim has mentioned that he's very interested in the work of Matt Siegel. And we also, we thought we might talk about that a bit. And then we might also talk about the Chino conference. So Dr. Jim, could you give a little bit of an introduction to yourself here and uh, then we can get started? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I was following um, Paul. He I guess in traditional fashion, he popped up a, a little bit because of Jordan Peterson. I don't know that I'm the most typical follower of Jordan Peterson, but but I certainly was aware of that. And uh, the algorithm brought Paul up. And I really took my first conversation with him uh, as an opportunity to kind of have conversations about these uh, kind of important stuff. Uh, felt like uh, it was something that was maybe lacking in in my um, my experience to have available conversation partner partners of that uh, type, and it worked out pretty well. I felt I felt uh, like I uh, enjoyed it and it seemed to be meaningful, and so I kind of kept pursuing it. My background is, you know, uh, I, I'd say maybe different than a lot of people in, in this corner. I'm a bit older. Um, my journey into Christianity is a little bit different, and maybe we could talk about that at some point. Um, and I, 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 I am kind of interested in the intersection of history, uh, what I kind of broadly call the the biggest uh, uh, view of the Western tradition, and um, and these ideas as they intersect in the kind of contemporary issues that we've all. Uh, uh, been facing and have been the center of the conversation with, with uh, this corner. So that's a, that's a 10,000 foot sketch. Um, I'm so I, I'm, I'm just going to poke around a little bit here. Um, I mentioned before we started recording that I thought it was interesting that as a cardiologist, you probably have a particular perspective on the world. Um, and the reason I said that is because every time I've ever met any sort of a physician, <clears throat> who has a specialty <clears throat> where they've actually drilled down far enough into some little corner of the human physiognomy. Um, they tend to have a particular view of the world. That's a little bit more connected to meaning rather than just strictly material processes. Um, so I don't know if that connects at all to how you think about things as a cardiologist, but. Yeah, I think it, it uh, it does. I I would say there's kind of two sides to that story. I definitely kind of come from a, a kind of uh, academic kind of science based uh, origin with um, with with without uh, in my youth, even into my twenties, without uh, a real uh, Christian focus of my experience at that time. So very very secular scientistic. Uh, view of at least my profession. So, uh, um, and there's that part of it as uh, for sure that that you know you want to do your best to do what's right and and to to the degree that uh, what's right is defined by 
the science of medicine, we certainly are constantly engaged with the science of medicine, the latest studies, the way those studies play into how we treat the imperfections and all of that for sure. But nonetheless, the uh, the goal, the ideal is to do that. And it, so it's very, you know, very much focused on a scientific view of all of that. Uh, at the same time, uh, I would say the reason that I moved to study medicine um, was focused on trying to use my capabilities. You know, I don't know that I was the smartest guy that ever went through school, but I knew I was, you know, at least capable of of putting in the work and 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 succeeding enough to make that happen when I was younger. And I wanted what I was doing to be meaningful and meaningful in a in a you know relational way with people in important moments uh you know of their lives and um and this seemed to be a very natural uh combination of those two things and um ended up with cardiology which does have you know uh, there's all it's a wide variety of stuff technology is a part of why i like it etc but it is you know very you know um highly uh concentrated moments in people's lives, important moments in people's lives, difficult moments in people's lives, and um, being alongside people, being uh, uh, a, a friend, a partner, uh, um, someone who can uh, share and hopefully give confidence to people in a difficult moment, love them in the broadest sense of that uh, word uh, is is a big part of how I, uh, let's say, attempt to to do what I do on a daily basis. So it does have that kind of breadth and variety of of ways of interacting with it, at the center of it, uh, the kind of love and and connection with individual patients who who are in a moment that's very important and and difficult for them in many cases. So that's how I see that, and I I think it's um, it's it's been good. I've I've really uh, been fortunate and blessed in my career. So I haven't had, you know, kind of difficulties that a lot of people have in business, uh, of medicine, et cetera. So I've, I've been very comfortable with my circumstance of work. Uh, and so it's, it's been good that way as well. So are you a surgeon as well? <clears throat> well, not really. Um, at least from the inside of medicine, there, there's a pretty sharp division between, what we count as sur surgeons and they train on a different track. You mentioned internal medicine earlier, way, way back in history, kind of the surgeons and internal medicine kind of split and the training is separate. Um, and cardiology, my, my uh, specialty is on the internal medicine side of that. So it's not really surgery. Although over time we've developed a lot of procedures, what we would call procedures rather than surgeries. Um, that that are part of what I do. Um, so uh, people might be familiar with cardiac catheterization, coronary angiography, pacemakers, that mm -hmm. kind of thing, which aren't really surgeries uh, or they're kind of small surgeries, we'd say, I guess. Mm -hmm. So so you quite often have somebody's life basically in your hands. <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess that's not an exaggeration, although, uh, you know, nowadays, uh, medicine is a very complicated thing. It's also a, a, a very system-based thing. There's a lot of people, highly trained, highly capable people who are 
who are all together doing this um, this practice and and taking care of the patients. So there's a whole lot of support, um, and a lot of the systems uh, uh, are also present to to make sure that we're doing the best we can to do the, do the best we can for the patient. And but yes, the, there are moments of uh, you know of uh, where where the patient has a critical is- issue and. Fortunately, we know in many of those cases we can do very specific things to to help them get through those moments and and uh, and it is it has that kind of intensity as a part of it for sure. Um, it seems also to have the, the necessary quality of community as being very very important to what you do. If you're working together with so many other people who have their own specialties to make sure that things work out well for the patient. Um, and yeah, it is a, it is a little bit of a different, well, I don't know if I'd say a difference, but I do have a little bit of a different perspective, I think on the question of, uh, you know, kind of the difficulties we're having with authority in the, in the culture, difficulties we're having with systems that seem to be uh, moving towards a sense of being oppressive in some ways and I wouldn't discount any of those things that people experience in dif- different realms. But I do have a little bit of a different experience of that from what I do, which is that the system is very important. It's a legacy. It's a it's a it's a long standing thing that's been developed over many years. And it, it it's very valuable. And um, I'm in that sense, I am in very much in support of of at least the ideal of of continuing that and making that as as good as we can in terms of how uh, how patients get cared for. So, yeah, um, it's kind of like Jordan Peterson always says: you have to go, you have to go into the belly of the whale to rescue your father. <laughs> and uh, a lot of these traditions that have made our lives better and have given us a more flourishing. Um, community, neighborhood, nation, all of this are in such danger now from people who want to come in and tear the systems apart. So um, we have to have people who are in favor of keeping the systems <laughs> operating functionally. So Yeah, I was, I was trained in a time, and I think this is still the case, but trained in a time when you were kind of geared uh, toward or pointed towards seeing yourself as the patient advocate. Back when I was originally trained, the physician had a more uh, kind of elevated role. Uh, uh, nowadays, all of the other staff are, are much more elevated in terms of their professionalism and their technical skills and their training. So the physician is not quite so so uh, solely responsible for things. But nonetheless, we were trained to be the patient advocate and kind of implied in that was that perhaps the system is a little bit blind to the individual patient a little bit blind to what might be the the differences in the way this patient needs to be treated um, as opposed to someone else. And so you do take the role in a certain sense of being part of the institution, being part of the whole machine of it, but also kind of seeing yourself as working within that to even maybe push back on the machine or or create a space within the machine where the patient gets... Um, you know, uh, maybe not treated so indifferently or anonymously. Um, well, so. because you're the one who has the most connection to that patient, right? I mean, you, right. you spend more time with them. 
you know them better, you know their situation better. So, yeah. It, yeah, it's interesting that that uh, that topic of my my profession, which, you know, I mean, there's lots, lots to talk about there, you know, kind of philosophically, life and death issues, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things. Um, it's both not been necessarily the topic that's come up when I've talked to Paul and in a way, not necessarily the thing that draws my interest so much mm -hmm. because, um, you know, kind of I came to this to exercise other aspects of the way I spend my time and my thoughts. Uh, and I've really appreciated the ability to kind of, uh, in a certain sense, be outside of that in a way. Uh, for Well, the, the reason I'm asking you is that if, as I ask you these questions, what's happening inside my head is I'm seeing this frame of how hierarchy and community and all these things that we talk about on a symbolic level, how they work in the real world and how necessary these things are in order to have a functional society. And <clears throat> when we try to run away from those things, or um, for example, I just had a conversation with a young man who has done a lot of study in economics. And <clears throat> he was looking at the difference between um, Austrian economics and Keynesian economics. Austrian economics looks at the individual as being the important part because the Austrian economics is based on the idea of human action and that all humans engage in purpose, purposeful behavior, where Keynesian economics is based on this idea of the aggregate, just looking at the numbers in aggregate. So I can see how in a hospital system, the system is working very well, but in general, they have to look at the patients as being in aggregate because they're thinking about the average heart patient or the average person who's coming in for a stent or that so that they have all the system put together for the average person. But as the doctor, you're more on the side of, I know this person individually. And so as an advocate, and so this is what, what's going on in my head is I'm scaling this out into all these different arenas, <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's not obvious to the people who are listening to me ask the questions. So anyway, we can move on from the whole medical thing and, uh, and go, go to the Chino conference, because I would be very interested in hearing your feelings about it. I mean, first of all, why did you decide to go? And then what was your experience there? Well, it was an opportunity that I could go. First off, I wanted to go to Thunder Bay and that didn't work out just scheduling wise, et cetera. So uh, it turned out that I could make that trip happen. So that was one reason. But yeah, I wanted to make it real. I wanted to I wanted to be, uh, you know, kind of with people face to face. I, I had already met with uh, with Jonathan Pajot on a separate conference that was up near Seattle, which is kind of close to where I'm at. And I enjoyed that. And um I had this experience at that conference in Seattle that was just parallel to what happened in Chino, which is that you just walk in and it doesn't take but five seconds before you're just sitting down with someone talking about the common thing that we're kind of all involved with here. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's just really engaging and enriching to, to have that kind of experience. And I, I met, and I knew, I kind of knew that was going to be the way it was. You know, I knew I could just sit down and, there'd be people who were just interested in talking. And, um, you know, I kind of like the fact that maybe some people recognize me and have heard what I've said, even though to some degree, some of my, some of my inputs, I'm, I, you know, I cringe at a little bit, but nonetheless, I like the fact that people 
you know, kind of come up and say, Oh, you're Dr. Jim. And I like this. And then we get to talk. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. And it's, it's, and I wanted to make it, uh, you know, face to face and real. And then, you know, a guy like John Verveke, um, you know, and Joe has got more status than he did before. I, I, I wanted to kind of, kind of engage with those uh, people as well. And on top of all that, Paul, I, you know, Paul is, you know, I'm pretty sure that this is not, proof about of for me alone but you know more than jordan peterson more than um more than peugeot or verveke paul is somehow a center of this thing for me his his kind of loving demeanor and his calm um equanimity about the whole thing and his uh position as a kind of committed christian all of those things make him uh the 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 center of this whole experience for me and i had not met him before so this was an opportunity for me to meet paul as well so for someone who is not familiar with what we're doing here when you say you got there and all of a sudden you could just have a conversation about the yeah. thing that we're about right how would you describe that thing that we're about yeah <laughs> and now you're gonna leave and now i don't know how I'm gonna <laughs> i don't know what it is um yeah i don't know it's um I think it's a sense, well, for me, it's really a sense that 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 people are engaged in in interesting ways, uh, grappling with the important, you know, kind of issues of being a human being uh, and thinking about those in connection with, you know, institutions like churches, various uh, ways of configuring those churches, different denominations non-Christians, uh, people in university thinking about ideas like cognitive science, uh, people who have read um, parts of the Western tradition that are very valuable to me. I just I mentioned this before, but I have a very particular interest in T.S. Eliot and love um, particularly one of his poems called Four Quartets. And I met probably four or five people who maybe not to the depth that I've kind of been uh, obsessed with that, but knew that enough to uh, to have a real conversation about it. Uh, whereas in my normal life, uh, you know, my, my work life, my uh, friends, my other uh, connections that I have, eh, not so interested in that stuff. So they don't really know it. So they, so it's not really, a, a, a topic where we can engage on it. So, and, and there's more than just that, the, um, the, the particular issues of, of, you know, what, what Verveke has called the meaning crisis and how that interacts with the way, um, you know, kind of our scientific culture has uh, developed in the last multiple decades um, I think is is something that was always interesting to me before this uh, started. And and I think that kind of conversation has gotten very rich in this corner. Uh, people are trying to come at that problem from different directions and have very interesting takes on that. And um, so those are some thoughts. I mean, there's probably even more to it than that. But uh, I mean, I always find it interesting because <laughs> I was at some work function of my husband's his company had invited us all <clears throat> to a lovely vacation in Hawaii but I mean it was all with his work colleagues and <clears throat> one evening I was sitting there talking with this other couple and and 
for some reason, I, I mentioned the YouTube channel and they said, well, what is it about? And <laughs> as I was trying to explain to them what I was doing, they just looked at me like I was yeah. from another planet. They just, <laughs> yeah, they maybe, maybe not, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. They just couldn't. Um, so then I started, I started to say, well, there's this guy, Jordan Peterson. And then I tried to describe him and then it got worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I yeah, think I was going to even ask. I, we get this. We, we're so up in our a little bit. We're up in our heads here mm. and we're enjoying these ideas so much. And so we enjoy each other so much. But then we have to take this back into our real life. And and. If we can't translate those ideas into some sort of action that we have with our families and our neighbors that don't know anything about this stuff without without being able to explain to them what we're doing, we have to just turn it into some sort of action that has, has meaning and purpose in our lives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That the Paul's concept of the on-ramp, you know, pe people need some sort of context to understand what we're talking, what, you know, what we're kind of doing here. And it's really hard in kind of normal activities to, to give them that context. Uh, I've I've got the um, the joy of my son and and my other kids as well have been engaged in conversations like this uh, previously. So so Kevin and I, my son, have had these kinds of conversations going back a number of years since he was in high school, and and he's a very kind of uh, thinker kind of a guy. Although he's he's into mystic the mystics, and he's writes poetry and he play, he writes music. So we have uh, that uh, commonality, and and that's been great as well. Although even since then, my I have two daughters as well, uh, and the whole family have gotten a habit of doing kind of, uh, kind of a book club kind of uh, experience that we do weekly, where we have similar kinds of conversations, which which wow to some to some degree have grown out of this process. Uh -huh. that's, been going on so so that's been really it's 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 kind of translated back into into my life to some degree too so. well so what are some of the books that your family has been reading together in your book club well for so far it's been movies we we watched uh silence i don't know if you know that um uh, that movie it's a uh, it's a movie about uh, from a book written by a japanese oh, fujimura or yeah yeah, yeah. um 16th century uh yes, I, I read that book when i was a missionary in japan oh you were a missionary 30, in japan wow <laughs> 30 35 years wow. ago wow yeah. yeah anyway that was it's a very intense movie it's it's got a lot of of thought very intense book yes yes so we read the book watched the movie and then we've had like three conversations about that we're we're moving on to some poetry that my daughter wants to uh, talk about. And mm -hmm. we're, we're going to kind of try to pass the, pass the, um, the, the leadership of the, of the conversation around between us. And so far it's been really kind of fun. That's such a great idea. I wonder if I can talk to my family. <laughs> <laughs> it was something that we, I thought, well, you know, I don't know because they don't listen to what I do with Paul, you know, no one else yeah. really does. Yeah. And it's like, eh, well, how's this going to work? But Kevin and I already had a context to have conversations and they, they, the rest came on and we, we keep the topics such that it's something we commonly might, you know, that all of us might be interested in. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's one of the biggest issues that I tried to kind of get some ideas about when I was at Chino is how how could we develop not necessarily an on-ramp, but how could we develop language around this that simplifies the the concepts, not dumbing them down, but but um, sort of collapsing them into their essence so that so that each of these concepts could be like, for example, Jordan Peterson did this whole lecture at at Ephesus, the logos at Ephesus that he did for um, the master's class in the first cohort at Ralston College. Mm -hmm. I was aware of that, although I didn't listen to it. Excellent lecture, just excellent lecture. But the way he gave that lecture, he sort of gave you the whole background and and the big picture. But then as he kind of wound it down, he he simplified, 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 simplified until he got to the very end. Basic theme of the whole thing was meaning precedes matter. And then I realized, well, of course, that's the theme of his whole book, Maps of Meaning. Mm -hmm. Meaning precedes Mm -hmm. matter. So that is a very simple statement that you can make with somebody and then they can say, well, what exactly does that mean? And then you can explain it a little bit more and then you can flesh it out a little bit more. So you're starting with the simple thing and then moving outward instead of starting with this whole great big behemoth that we carry around in our heads Yeah, and try to explain that, you know? Yeah, and I've thought of uh, trying to do this a little bit with other realms, you know, other kind of circles of, of contacts that I have. I'm thinking maybe more the context, you know, like setting up something that's on a topic that we know we have shared interest and, you know, getting together for coffee on a regular basis. And I I don't know, I've had the thought of doing that and it hasn't quite turned into anything yet uh, at that level. So um, it did try several years ago before COVID and we actually had a pretty good group going um, of having a meetup. I think we met maybe five times altogether before mm-hmm. COVID hit. And then we couldn't meet anymore because we were meeting at my house. I tried to do it online a couple of times after that, but there were like 15 to 20 people. It's just very unwieldy to try to have anything online. And I then I just gave it up. But um, <clears throat> when we were having it, then each week we would pick a topic, like maybe a video. And then we would talk about that and talk about the ideas in it. And it was it was wonderful. I mean, not all the people were as avid fans of Jordan Peterson, but um, but they all had some understanding. And so we could talk about ideas in that way. And I thought it was very helpful. Um, it wasn't exactly the estuary idea because the estuary idea hadn't been formulated yet, but I, I would say we ran it pretty much like an estuary where everybody was free to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And try to keep any one person from dominating too yeah. much. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's facilitating those kinds of things is difficult. Yeah. What, you know, I, I've watched your channel a number of times, not, not religiously, but a number of times. And what I've come away with is that you're, uh, you're wide ranging in, in the kind of people you get to talk to very interesting people, but very wide ranging. Do you think you can give a 
thematic description of what you're trying to do? Well, I, I try not to talk about it too much when I'm doing the channel because part of my goal is to open a space for people to think about these things and maybe they'll land in the same place that I've landed. But when I started the channel, my thought was that I, in my head, there's this big picture. And I mean, you know, there are different frames of reference for how we look at the world and somebody who's into economics, they can begin to see, oh yeah, there's a lot of things about reality that are related to economics all the way down. And mm -hmm. you're a cardiologist. And so you can look at the, the human physiology, the human organism, and you can see that there are certain similarities there to the way the whole universe scales. And mm -hmm. so in every domain of knowledge, there's some sort of frame that you can put on that has that picture. Well, for me, it's um, building a work of art, the process of painting a painting and what all is involved in that. <clears throat> I began to see that that is a frame that fits on every single domain of knowledge. And there are certain principles that are involved in that building a, a work of art that are deep principles in almost every arena of science and physics and philosophy and history and, and so all I, different art I, forms. Uh, and so oh, that that's what I've been exploring. I've been trying to talk to people and see if that original thought holds water in all these different areas. And so when, as I talk to people, the questions I ask, are for me sort of dedicated to get them talking about things that will help me see if it's fitting inside this frame. I, I like that. Um, and I noticed that about it. Certainly you have the paintings. I, I'm assuming the paintings are your paintings. Uh, yeah. I, I like the music that you start with, the cello suite. And it got me thinking about something that I've been kind of working on this this idea i mentioned in our in our email about formation mm -hmm. and it makes me go down this path and i'll see what you, you think about it first first i would take an uh, idea of well the formation idea that i talk with paul about relative to to verveke now i don't want to speak like i know john verveke i don't but but i do think that there's something about the, his story that plays out in his thinking in his thought and what he's actually doing. Um, so as, as an example, um, he talks about his first experience with Plato, particularly Socrates and how profound that moment was when he kind of confronted the, the, uh, you know, kind of famous centerpiece of, of Plato and Socrates being the most, uh, important thing that I know is that I don't know. And, you know, as I've thought about that with Verveke, I was interested in how I had a very different impression of Plato when I first read Plato. When I was in college, probably was the first time I really, I don't wouldn't say I seriously read Plato, but read Plato in a philosophy class. And my reaction to that line was exactly the opposite. It was like, you know, this is supposed to be profound, but I knew that I didn't know anything. And it made me think about Verveke's formation and realized and again, I'm, I'm reading into John Verveke's life, so uh, forgive me for that. But he came from a, a kind of difficult Christian background, a difficult formation in a fundamentalist uh, background, which he 
is open about talking about. Mm -hmm. And I, I imagine that the reason that he resonated with the idea of someone declaring so forcefully that they don't know comes from the fact that he had been hurt and had a difficult time with a kind of worldview and a community that wanted to say, you've got to know this, this is the truth. And because that was such a painful place, that kind of view of the world, that there's a fixed single truth, was something he had to move away from. And mm -hmm. when he saw in something like Socrates, the opposite statement, it opened a whole world up for him. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that really, I think, is is kind of in a certain sense, where he's going with this, he's working on these technologies in these kind of abstract uh, uh, psychotechnologies as he talks about it. And it's all to kind of rebuild the world um, in a setting where you can feel open to investigate and not necessarily have a fixed dogmatic starting point. And uh, and that's my thought on Verveke, and then I can maybe twist this over to my own history, if you, unless you want to throw in a few comments on that. Well, I would like to follow out just a little bit on this idea of <clears throat> not knowing. We could spend hours talking about that, but um, the the big idea that that I run into with quite a few people there there was a guy who was in this little corner quite vociferously for the first couple of years and has sort of backed away it was a guy by the name of Carl. And <clears throat> Carl could be pretty forceful in the comment sections. <laughs> and Carl really resisted the whole idea of God number two. He was really a person who believed very strongly in God number one, because he did believe that there was a moral structure to the universe, but he resisted the idea that there was an actual God that could be personal or could be connected to people in any way. Um, and he would often talk about the idea that truth is unknowable. And so I, I kept trying to find, I, I had many conversations with him and I was trying to find a place where we could have a meeting of the minds where I could see that maybe through a different lens, I could understand what he was talking about. And I th think a lot about what Paul says when he he kind of talks about C.S. Lewis's idea that we go further up and further in. And there was another guy that had been on Paul's channel early on by the name of Chris Wilson, who was a architect and very interested in mathematics. And he talks about the the asymptote in calculus and how it it approaches the axis, but it never touches the axis as it's going up. And so to me, that was a visual picture of further up and further in. And in that sense, I can think of Christ as being the truth and we can never get there perfectly. We can never perfectly align ourselves with Christ because then we would be him, right? But we can get closer and closer and closer. And so I think there's a there is a truth in science that you can get closer and closer to the truth through theorizing and experimenting and um, 
coming to deeper and deeper understandings, but you're never going to actually get something and say, now this is the truth and it's never going to be changed. Um, except yeah. for the truths that relate to Christ. And so that, that that's where you sort of come to this sticking point, you know? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a guy who wants, um, wants particulars in that area. Well, I guess I'd say it this way. I, I do have a little bit of, a little bit of, um, I don't know how to put it. Um, I do think that truths, truths are contextual. Truths are are things that find themselves in the in a world, and uh, so the the setting in which you're talking um, is you know is going to set the parameters of what it is that you know is going to end up uh, being being um, considered rock solid. Uh, it's mm -hmm. rock solid, but it's just rock solid in a context. And then, of course, we're all you know. So that's the way I see science, for example. You know, if, if if you turn to the world and look at everything you encounter as an effect, then you can work out finding lots of causes, and and you and that could be very helpful. So the frame is you start by looking at everything as an effect, and you're gonna you know that's gonna be very useful to you. But it that's not the only way of of, of framing the world. That's obviously only a very limited frame. Uh, it has no uh, doesn't help you with uh, meaning and and our dependence on each other and and our uh, diff, you know our difficulties with you know with pain and suffering but our joys with um, with connection to each other and with God and so ultimately there's going to be a context in which we understand you know each um, you know each uh, a truth. Uh, and, you know, if, I guess if for me, it, you know, when you get to a, a thought about, uh, Christ, you're talking about the widest or most open context. And, um, and then that's where the fullness of that understanding comes. Um, it doesn't necessarily, you know, flatten out any of those other contexts or undo the truths that you find in those contexts. But, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that resonates with you, but. Yeah, so you're sort of differentiating between truths and truth. And uh, I guess... Yeah, I have a little thing about the use of the word truth. <laughs> and I, I I, I, do think that, you know, it's a word that fudge, fudges. And I think that it is useful every now and then to go through a little exercise about what how we use the word truth. Because, you know, I think in a very strict sense, you can focus the meaning of the word truth as a property of a of a truth claim that, that's truth is the property of a truth claim. So if I say, you know, the ball is red, um, uh, that's not, uh, that's going to be true or false depending on the state of affairs relative to the ball. Uh, so that's a correspondence, uh, you know, kind of theory of truth that I'm, I, you know, I know that's, there's been pushback on that in this corner, but, um, but then you can, you know, you, then you can notice that there's, you know, that, that if I say something like, it is true that the ball is red. Now, that use of the word true is not really, um, that's just a, a superlative or an emphasis. It doesn't really have the content, doesn't change the sentence. It's true that the ball is red is no different than the ball is red. So mm -hmm. in, in that kind of epistemologic setup, 
you 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 know when you, when you say generically something like um the gospel is the truth um then then you get to decide how that how that all works itself out i don't know how how does that make you feel well i guess the way i've sort of tried to parse it out in my own head is that i hadn't thought about it in terms of truth and truths but i do think about it as Christ is the truth. I mean, that's what he says about himself. I am the truth. And then for me, it's not at all surprising that we find little pieces of truth in a lot of different arenas. And so <clears throat> I do believe that from the very beginning that God made the truth about himself known to his creation but then the Tower of Babel, and, and here's where I expose myself. I really do believe that there was a Tower of Babel and that the languages were divided. Um, and, and I think the history of language looks very much like that when you look at the language trees. But um, inside those languages, there are little bits of truth hidden about God. And that what became apparent to me when I was reading some books about Chinese characters when I was a missionary in Japan. Um, you maybe know the story of Hudson Taylor when he was a missionary in China, and he discovered some of these truths buried inside the Chinese characters, and he would use them for preaching. One of them was the Chinese character for righteousness. Now, people who write Chinese characters today in China particularly, are writing a very simplified version. So it's not the same version that that Taylor was using. But, you know, Chinese characters are built of these little boxes. So in one Chinese character, there might be two boxes, one on top of each other, or there might be two boxes, one beside each other, or there might be four boxes. <clears throat> but in, in the one for righteousness, there's two boxes, one on top and one on the bottom. The one on top is a a Chinese character for lamb. And the one on the bottom is the Chinese character for me. <laughs> so righteousness is lamb over me. Now, how do they talk about that? How do they, why, why do they, how do they explain that? Well, how do the Chinese these, explain that? These I mean? characters have a thousands of year history. History, right. Them, yeah. Right. So yeah. I'm not sure that they. There isn't any they to explain it. Yeah. It's yeah, just the, it's yeah. the tradition. Yeah. But, wow, but, that's that's pretty interesting. Right. To me, that was that was part of the truth that that language group took with it when it went. And then so in the way I picture it is there are these little pieces of truth in all these different language groups that went out and then became different cultures. And over time, sin corrupts. And I mean, they were already corrupted mm -hmm. at the Tower of Babel and things get a little bit twisted. And so then the different cultures don't match up anymore. The languages yeah. are going in different directions. Yeah. And everybody has their own. And, and, and these little pieces of truth might have gotten shifted and they're looking through a kaleidoscope and they don't quite see it the way mm -hmm. they used to see it. And so but it, it's not surprising to find little pieces of truth everywhere. That does not negate that Christ himself is truth and that that there is a larger truth that all of these little pieces of truth were originally part of. And, uh, hmm. and, yeah. and and then the other thing is there's this physicist named Nima Arkani Hamed, and 
some people on my channel probably think you're beating a dead horse, Karen. <laughs> but um, Glenn, who's a physicist I've talked to a number of times, told me about Nima Arkani Hamed and how he had done this. He's a particle physicist and he's extremely well known in physics circles. He had done a talk, um, which has sort of been buried because physicists aren't supposed to talk about this kind of thing. And he was talking about the, the morality of fundamental physics. Or is it the fundamental morality of physics? I can never remember which it is. But he was saying that when, when you're a scientist working in physics, that you have to have a certain moral temperament that you're unwilling to accept anything less than um, the as true an outcome as you can find. <clears throat> because if you're willing to fudge some um, outcome from an experiment in order to polish yourself up a little bit or, you know, write a, a paper that makes you famous, it will find you out because these things have a way of finding people out. So you have to be rigorously a person of integrity in order to do physics. And then he talked about what he calls the two mountains. And he showed the mountain of Newtonian physics and how it's perfect and it works. And it's been useful <clears throat> even to send people to the moon. But then along came Einsteinian physics, <clears throat> which encompasses Newtonian physics, but is outside of it in a taller mountain. But you can stand at the top of Mount Einstein and look out and you can still see the mountain of, of Newton. Newton's truth hasn't been diminished over the years. <clears throat> it's still there, but now there is what this guy called a larger truth in Einsteinian physics and that yeah, the, uh, come, there'll be another mountain beyond that. That's going to look back at Einstein and say, yeah, he had part of it, but that wasn't the whole thing. And now there's this new mountain. Yeah. I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I don't, I play in, I play in all these sandboxes, but I'm not really, you know, I'm not really in them. <laughs> Although yeah. I did, I did study in college. I was, I, my pre-med was, was studying physics and I was all interested in the ideas of, you know, Einstein when I was in high school and all that, that was, that was kind of one of my early little passions. Although I only, you know, that didn't last all that long, but I did have a lot of interest in this. And, and I, I would say there's another way of looking at the question of, of Newton being nested within Einstein. And I'd be, well, maybe he didn't say nested, but he said, right. you can, you can look at, Newton's mountain from the mountaintop of Einstein. Yeah. So. so I'd be interested in talking to you about this because there is a very interesting book in the middle of the 20th century by a guy named Thomas Kuhn, mm -hmm. who who wrote the, the structure of a scientific revolution is I think the name of the book. And in there, he, you know, because everyone had kind of run with the understanding that if you take the equations of Einstein and then you put in the, the parameters of large objects, you know, uh, you're going to end up with and and cross off the remainders that that are too small to count when you're talking about larger objects. Well, then that formula is just reduced to the formulas of of Newton. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know the the Einstein tells you more about a larger domain, but it also 
tells you about the domain that that Newton's physics was about. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it for a minute, you'll realize that there's actually a very clear difference between the worlds that Newton was talking about and the world that Einstein was talking about. And if you think about just the the equation F equals MA, which is Newton, force equals mass times acceleration, and you think about the E equals MC squared and the M in that, and you think, well, those are ontologic claims. Those two things are making claims about what is in the world, what a mass is. And it turns out that they're different. The M in F equals MA is an entirely different entity than the M in the E equals MC squared. And so in a way, they're really not talking about the same thing. And the, you know, and I, I don't know if you follow that or or if that impacts what his thought was. It probably doesn't. I would be, I, I'm sure he's well, fully aware of this so kind of could stuff. You, could you just say a bit about what is the difference between the, the mass in F equals MA and the mass in E equals MC squared? Yeah, the mass in F equals MA <laughs> is a, is a it's a it's a entity that's located in a cartesian grid at a certain location and it has a property of exerting a force the force of gravity on other masses in the region or anywhere frankly in the universe in proportion to the square of the distance between the two so you know the earth exerts mm-hmm. a force on the moon and it's and nothing's going on. This was one of the discussion points around Newton for many years as to how this was supposed to work. You know, there's this what was referred to as spooky action at a distance because the Earth is exerting this force on the moon, but nothing's happening in between. And it's kind of unexplainable why that might work, right? But the 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 mass of the earth has this power or this force, this ability, this, this disposition to exert forces on other masses. That's what the mass is in, in Newton's story. So, so, and as I understand it, whether or not that story is correct, the math works. The math works as long as you're talking about, uh, as long as you're in the right scale, as long as you're talking about, you know, what, you know, things of the size of planets and baseballs and and um, not talking about traveling at speeds that approach the speed of light. As long as you're not talking about those things, it, 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 it works. The mass in the Einsteinian world is is not doing that. It's not it, it's it's, quote unquote, deforming the space around the mass. It's creating a effect on the actual space that's that the mass is in and then another mass is over here it's doing the same thing and now the distortions in the space which i can't remember how to talk too much more about it than that but because this is long ago that i was thinking about it but the the those two things are are affecting the space and you can kind of know very quickly that the newtonian thing is not going to work because if you imagine the thought experiment of making the moon disappear in an instant, just it's there one moment and it's not there the next. The question would be, what would the effect on the tides be? How the tides are being held up by the moon, right? How would that effect occur in the tide? Well, 
Newton's mechanics would say that there would be an instantaneous effect on the on the tides. As soon as the moon disappeared, the 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 effect would occur. Well, that's obviously not going to work because there's ultimately a duration that it takes for the loss of the of the mass of the moon to have its effect on the on the tides and that is accounted for in Einstein's theories that there's a there's an effect on the space that's intervening and then that transmits through the space in a finite amount of time and so you can see that the differences there account for things like that and then obviously very much more um I don't, I don't know and that that means that the that the ontologies of the two theories are different that they're calling mm -hmm. out different actual things in the world and of course we're going to believe that einstein is correct and newton was not in that uh but that kind of means that while it was functional and then there's this question about practical truth you know utilitarian truth it was functional and created a, the modern world in a lot of different ways mm -hmm it was not really talking about real entities in the world. Well, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's two aspects of it. I think Nima Arkani Hamed is talking about the idea that it, it it's functional. The math works. Um, it, it's a, it's sort of like, you know, in Jordan Peterson's framework, it's sort of like an, it's sort of like ideological purity. It's got its own thing, right? Yeah. And and then and then there's Einsteinian physics, which which has its own worldview, its own way of looking at things. The other thing is that that Newtonian mechanics, as I understand it, is based on this idea that the universe is kind of like clockwork. And Einsteinian physics leaves a little bit more room for some of these other complexities that that maybe aren't taken into account in Newton. And so there's a little bit more room for, I mean, some people would say there's more room for woo. But <laughs> well, and the other thing you can say is that that while we are ready to, well, I'm ready to say, because I'm, I'm talking about this stuff, but I'm only a, a I don't know, an amateur or something. I don't know. But um, we can say that Newton is not calling out real entities in the world. In other words, when he, when M doesn't represent something that really exists, we can probably say the same thing about Einstein. In other words, mm -hmm. we can say that that's an incomplete theory. And Einstein knew this himself, that it wasn't a complete theory. It didn't encompass everything, eh, gravitational waves, quantum mechanics, all the, the unified field theory idea that he spent the last half of his life trying to figure out is, is kind of admitting that there's an incompleteness to those theories. And therefore we can kind of think that the, that the newer theories have the same relationship to whatever is out there in the world for real, as we just said that the Newtonian one does. In other words, they're not necessarily calling out uh, this, this would make me a, uh, a non-scientific realist. In other words, the, the structure of these conceptual frameworks work to, to give us information about what's going to happen in experiments and and in configuring doing engineering of solid state circuitry etc but it's still an open question as to whether it's reasonable to talk about the real existence of an electron or you know that's still an open con uh, conversation and um not necessarily resolved as yet as far as i understand it well this is one of the things i like about um, Stephen Wolfram's new fundamental physics, because while 
he may be right or wrong in his formulation of this new physics, he does have a picture of how things work that I think is pretty helpful. And that is that all of these different things depend on who the observer is. So we are a particular, as human beings, we are a particular kind of observers and we see things at a particular scale. And therefore we, we, we see patterns in the universe that maybe something at a larger scale or a smaller scale wouldn't recognize those patterns, but we recognize them. And he calls these um, slices of computational reducibility. So when Einstein came up with E equals MC squared, that's a slice of computational reducibility. And there are things about Einsteinian physics where the whole thing is a slice of computational reducibility. It's something that we can get hold of and we can use it computationally to manipulate our world. But most of the universe is computationally irreducible. So it just depends on certain kinds of observers in certain locations as to how they see things. And, and so, you know, that, yeah, they, this was kind of what I was saying earlier on, where I was saying that uh, the truths find themselves in a particular context. Yes. You, I, I was doing math based physics in, co in college and there were in all of the problems that you do, you know, just here, just a student kind of problem. There are what are referred to as boundary conditions and the boundary mm -hmm. conditions set the edges, set the, the kind of, the, the the edges of the problem and they allow you to solve the problem that is to say if you don't have any boundary conditions then then you're there's not going to be uh you know that the uh, i can't even think up an example but if you don't have a boundary condition which is kind of setting the context where the problem is to be run well then you can't solve the you can't solve the equation so um so you're always in some sort of a perspective there's always a setup to the problem and that setup will allow for you know kind of constants to be entered in to the formulas and then a number will come out and as long as you set the the experiment up that way the answer is going to be the the one that you generate but if you just try to have it answer the question about everything at once you're really going to not have an answer um well, I mean, this is one of the principles that I ran into in art. If you don't set the boundary conditions before you start, you can't, I mean, basically you can't move forward at all. Right. It's a, the, the medium you're too using. computationally irreducible, right. you can't, you you know, you can't make your way through the field of potential. So. Yeah, exactly. You, too you many, have to too have many the, options. Computational yeah. explosion. Uh, yeah. 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 And, uh, but I like that you when you use the, the terminology you used where you said the boundary conditions set the edges of the problem. The other thing that that brings up for me is that so many scientists say that they are, you know, strictly scientific and and everything is reductionist and materialist and you don't need any any personal input into that. But every single time they run a, any sort of an experiment, they're the ones that set the boundary conditions. I mean, right. Every single time we can't touch, we can't run any experiment without touching it, without having some sort of human input in it. Even if it's, you know, they say, oh, well, a machine could be the observer. Well, yes, a machine could be the observer, but somebody made the machine. You know? Yeah, so I think it's even point, it, in a, a way it's, it's even worse than that, because 
what what that kind of scientific attitude will do is that it'll say, well, you, you know, you'll say, well, wait a minute, you had a purpose in running that experiment. So that's bringing in something that's not materialistic, a purpose, a telos. But then they'll what they'll want to do with that, a, a kind of pure reductionist will want to do with that is they'll want to kind of create a kind of deflated uh, domain of kind of psychology or or, you know, that's just uh, just mind and that's just people, you know, culture, all that stuff is in some sense by that move is kind of has a deflated uh, sense of importance. Um, and and that's, I think, one of the real uh, uh, destructive parts of the materialistic worldview that has come you know, kind of with so much momentum from the past is that it's taken things that we all accept. It's not like the scientist doesn't, you know, love his dog and and love his children and all that. But it's created this circumstance where we could just naturally, you know, without thinking about it, diminish the importance of things that are quite obviously the most important things, the meanings of things and the the uh, meanings of our relationships and the and the meaning of doing the experiment and this is this can of course become a, a a way in which science becomes itself destructive because there's some notion that well the the doing the science is separate from let's say the moral implications of doing the science and um you know i'll leave that to some other person to figure out the morality of what i'm doing <laughs> you know that's just psychology or that's just philosophy or that's just some lesser thing the humanities or you know how i don't know what politics or whatever it is i'm just going to do my little experiment here and that um that's a kind of attitude that hopefully we're kind of moving away from some um uh, i don't know if you have thoughts on that yeah, I, but... I i think we're moving further and further into it faster and faster yeah because, yeah i mean i i hear more and more of these people saying well you know mind is just the brain and brain is just the neurons right. and neurons are just the electrical impulses and and uh, right and, and the, the most no... important word in that in those in those sentences is just meaning it's a, it's a it's a it's a move to diminish the importance of it mm -hmm. without any reason to diminish the importance of it. There's no, there's no justification for that diminishment. And yet that's what that's doing is it's, it's um, you know, it's reducing the importance of, of those important things. Well, and, and has, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, you know, decades and decades ago, if you keep making that move, then then just your experiment is completely meaningless because it's just neurons firing somewhere accidentally because of some particle that started moving 13.7 billion years ago. And Or you know. more importantly, you raise a generation or more than one generation of young people in to think that reductive materialism is in some sense the foundation of of our knowledge and uh and the any sense of of you know kind of meaningful engagement with these other issues uh becomes ignored and then we don't even know we don't have the skills we don't have the psychotechnologies we don't have the ability in our communication with each other and our 
in our politics and our our human relations to actually work these things out, work out the important issues of of what choices we're making with that very technology. We've lost the tools to actually make those kinds of choices. Well, so you said when you were a young man, I think in your 20s, um, you saw the world through this materialist lens and, and you studied medicine through that materialist lens. And at what point did you start thinking that there was something beyond that and did you and at that point did you start reading ancient literature or yeah it's a little bit i talk about that in a little bit of a different way i i have a a very i think an eclectic uh eclectic christian faith and i i don't think well i grew up uh and had uh i lived in a in a in a kind of secular world my family was my parents were Methodists in their, you know, in the family. They had gone to a Methodist university, in fact, met there. But my father became a physician and they moved distant from their family. Uh, and due to the circumstances of this, of the, of the environment, you know, we, and my patient and my parents' choice, we kind of stopped maybe when I was an infant, we'd gone to church, but pretty much between my time I remember all the way into my 20s, we really didn't have uh, a context of conversation of any significance uh, in terms of in terms of Christianity. And so I grew up into that. But I don't I don't know how to I've talked about tried to talk about this before. It's, it's kind of difficult. But, you know, I had my awakening, my coming to recognize myself, my separation from, you know, re, you know, self self-identity and had a kind of normal, I think, you know, moment of recognition and the alienation that comes along with that kind of youthful alienation of, um, you know, recognizing that my parents are, are not the ideals that I thought that they were. And, uh, um, and that I was an independent, uh, I was independent of, uh, of others and had a kind of angsty, um, you know, kind of alienation moment, kind of like, you might read in uh, in Catcher in the Rye, that kind of thing, and um, kind of worked through that in a more in a much more secular kind of vein, and that's where I picked up my love for kind of literature and art because I was searching for examples. I was searching for art to to tell my story. I, I wasn't searching for art to teach me how to navigate as much as I was, you know, show me that I wasn't alone in my in my kind of moment of of uh ennui or whatever you want to call it and uh and i found art and literature uh you know in a low level when i was in high school you know music i'm a i'm a, a late 70s kid so you know things like neil young and Joni mitchell and that kind of thing bob dylan um those things were important to me and then when i went to college it was more high culture you know uh, Hamlet was very important to me when I was young. Things like that. Um, I, I read the classics and framed kind of in, internalizing them as uh, the kind of models for my own experience and didn't really feel like I needed... I, it wasn't a deconstruction. It wasn't like I needed something. I, I, I wanted to be in community with i wanted to uh, have something that 
emoted, helped me to emote the experience of that, but didn't necessarily feel as I've see, heard a lot of people talk about a crisis or a need to escape the secular world and find a, a you know, a, a, a purer place. And um, I don't know if I'm expressing this very well, but ultimately, you know, as I, as I lived through, you know, my young adulthood, uh, came to see that that the Christian narrative, essentially seen as a as a narrative in the Western tradition, was actually the best reflection of what I experienced. And so it wasn't a kind of moment of metanoia or kind of being born uh, again or or transitioning into um, into a new kind of frame of 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 view but rather recognizing that this was the best this was the highest um, expression of human experience and that's how i came to christianity it's a little little different than i think others but well was was t.s Eliot? um was your interest in t.s Eliot prior to that or after that yeah, that's an interesting thing because I I read T.S. Eliot before, well before I was a Christian, and kind of didn't really recognize. Seems ridiculous to me now, but didn't really. Yeah, recognize. I mean, I read a lot of T.S. Eliot <laughs> yeah. in college, but yeah. must have gone right over my head. It never yeah. occurred to me that there was anything about faith in there. Yeah. Anyway, I uh, I've 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 loved it. It's it's, and I've told this story, Paul. I had an aunt when I was in college before I was a Christian who uh, wasn't a real close aunt, so I don't want to overstate the emotional event that this was, but it was a real event. She committed suicide and it was it was a big, you know, medium-sized deal, let's say, in our, in our family. And in a way that was not wrong, so I'm not kind of trying to characterize my family members in a negative way, but I came to, I was at college, I was away from home. It was have been difficult for me to go to the funeral. It was all the way across the country. There wasn't any conversation about that, but I found out later that my sisters, my two sisters and my parents had gone to her funeral and it wasn't that I was angry at that, about that. I was not, but it made me realize that I did not have the vehicle. I did not have the communal vehicle to experience that moment. So it went by me as an event that I knew was important. I knew was meaningful and yet I didn't have the context in which to actually emote about it, to to be with other people in the in the moment of this very, you know, kind of fairly important uh, event. And I realized that that was a mistake, that not engaging in not having the communal structures around which to to make real, let's say, in an emotional sense, and in a communal sense, in a, in a group sense, to make real those kinds of big events, not having those structures is 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 um, destructive and not not the right way to to engage things. Mm -hmm. And so later, I come to see that Christianity is, if it's at its best for me, it's the structures for having those experiences in in the real way that we need to experience them and. I don't know if that resonates, but that's that's how I see it. Yeah, I mean, I had a, a 
similar outcome. I, I wouldn't say it's a similar experience maybe, but my brother was killed in a small plane crash when mm. I was 40, 41 and he was, I was 40 and he was 45 maybe. He's five years older than me. But I had just gone to Japan as a missionary mm-hmm. and and my husband and I were there and I didn't feel like we had the money that I could go back for the funeral. Sure. And this had happened in Alaska. And it also happened to be a time at which my parents had had a falling out. They had gone to Florida for the winter. They had had a kind of a falling out in Florida. And my mother had returned home to Iowa and my father had stayed in Florida. And then my brother died. Yeah, so my nice. parents are separated and neither of them could go to the funeral. <clears throat> it, was so, it was such a complicated, difficult, painful time. I couldn't go to the funeral. Basically, in other words, we left my brother's wife and his two kids uh, to, to navigate that by themselves. I always felt like there, there was just no closure. There was n- nothing to finish that, right? And and I had, for many other reasons, I had a lot of reasons to to grieve over my brother's death. And um, when that kind of thing happens and you don't have that fellowship with other people and you don't have, and I was not, you know, I, I was a Christian at the time, but my parents were not Christians. My brother and his family were not Christians. They had no, <clears throat> they had no family in the church to come around them. Um, <clears throat> it's a very, you know, it's a very tough time. Yes, this is, I do, you know, kind of in a way, don't, the abstractions that we talk about are, are maybe less important than the, the liturgy of it or the sacramentality of it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, for sure. And, and Shakespeare doesn't do that, (laughs) you know, um, you know, it isn't, it isn't in Shakespeare, although, you know, there's lots, you know, you go to a play, you emote together in a group and all that, but uh, or and it doesn't have to be Shakespeare. It could be, you know, Taylor Swift concert or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But it but it isn't the same thing. Uh, you know the the elevation of the of the whatever uh, the elevation of Jesus Christ to the highest is is the thing that it's it's the that makes it uh, meaningful. I don't, I don't want to say that makes it meaningful, but it's the truth. And so it it has more gravity and more import than does, you know, other kinds of, uh, let's say, works of art or literature, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, well, part of that is that whole thing when you were talking about things being nested inside of other things. I mean, that that is one place where everything is nested inside That's of right. that picture right everything that's right even you as an individual and i it's moved to this for me as well because you know a lot of the struggles that we face we face alone and um and if there's nothing if there's nothing proximal to you if 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 jesus cannot be there um you know in the in the moment of um you know then it's a pretty bleak image yeah, I mean, I I fully remember um, 
when both my parents were dying, they, they went through a kind of a long ordeal of dying. And it was right after my husband had left me. So I had returned from Japan to my home church and people were very gracious and would come around and say, you know, how's your mother doing? How's your father doing? And, and I knew that they were doing that because they cared about my, you know, my feelings. They cared. They wanted to pray. So they wanted updates. But after a while, I felt as though I was just a medical update machine and there was no real fellowship and there was no real comfort in that because at the end of the day, nobody else could understand what was going on inside of me as hard as they might try. And even if they would come and sit beside me, which many of them did and came along and did very practical things for me, which was all wonderful, but nobody could understand what I was going through. Only Christ. And because I knew that Christ could understand what I was going through, then I had a friend to walk through that with. And mm -hmm. if, if I hadn't, I don't know what people do when there's not a single human being or person that they can talk to about what they're experiencing, because some things are so very hard to put into words. You can't explain them to somebody else, especially when it comes to pain, get so tangled up with everything in your life. Um, yeah. And if we, and if we decide, and it's a decision, it's if we decide that we're going to think of the world as, as a, um, you know, in a, in the way that a reductive materialist does. And if we teach our kids that, and if we, then what we're all we're doing there is just saying, well, then when you're in your room alone, you're really alone. That's, that's, that's the, that's the, you know, that's the metaphysic, that's the ontology of that view. And, you know, I, I, I there could be other ways of framing it besides a Christian way, but it certainly is, um, you know, that's certainly a bleak view. If 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 you don't recognize the implication of what you're saying about your experience, then it can be it can be very difficult for people. I would assume. Here, here's yeah. another little direction. Your song, the 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 piece that you choose. This is an aesthetic move. I don't know if we have time for this. Oh, sure. Okay. Sure. But I mean, I have to tell yeah. you in yeah. full, full disclosure, I had nothing whatever to do with that. That, oh, um, is that right? opening. there there's a young guy that is was part of the corner. I'm assuming he still is. Mm -hmm. His name is Chris Petkow. Mm -hmm. And he had his own channel for a while. I, I don't know if he's still doing it. And he was very good at putting clips together on his uh, channel. And I, I told him one time when he was on my channel, I said, I don't know how to do that. I mean, this is why I don't have any B-roll or anything like that on my mm -hmm. channel. Um, and I said, I would love to have an intro that was interesting and that would capture people's attention, but I don't know how to do it. And he said, I'd be happy to do that for yeah. you. <laughs> and and you he, got these paintings of cello players. So there you go. He came up Very with the cool. whole thing. He went to yeah. my website. He got all the paintings off of there. Do you like the Do you like the mood that it sets? Because that's where I wanted to talk a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, I just thought what he picked was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, maybe at this point now, I would, I might make it shorter. Yeah, I think it's a little bit long, but I don't know how to do. Well, here's that. my here's my thought. <laughs> this is this is a different version of the Verveki you know, an effort to try to develop uh, psychotechnologies for the meaning crisis. 
Okay. And that is that um is the blues. Because for me, and this and the and you know, and the the cello suite that you've got is has got a little bit of somberness to it, but it's gloriously beautiful. Uh and that kind of um, you know, I, I told you before that I kind of in my youth I had this this kind of ennui, this kind of uh, you know, kind of sense of the pain of human existence and mm -hmm. the tragedy of human history and all of that, uh, and sought out in 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 art, um, you know, some sort of way through that. And you know, I come to find I I I look back and I think of uh, kind of the idea of uh, let's just say the blues is a good example of this because the blues has at its base the this kind of recognition of the tragedy of human experience and yet it's married up with in a way that's very difficult to kind of describe or or see how you would flesh it out a kind of uplifting joy that's kind of just embedded in the very nature of that kind that musical form and so in a way it takes the let's say it takes the meaning crisis seriously it takes the difficulty that we face um, you know, just in our existential circumstance, seriously, but it also marries it up with a kind of uplifting, joyful, you know, essentially joyful or at least redemptive um, uh, content, emotional content, and that you know that is better than um, the kind of harsh. Uh, world of the of the kind of new atheists, um, you know. I don't know. I don't know if that works for you, but I do think I do think that kind of vision can put together authenticity in our face facing the difficulties, but at the same time a redemptive sense. And that's one of the ways that art works for me is a kind of aesthetic of that type. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that whole idea of redemptive because that's that was the turning point for me in the way that I did art. Um, there was a certain point that I went from doing strictly representational art to doing work that was a little bit more experimental. And um, it happened one time when I was trying to do a portrait of a woman friend of mine who was a paraplegic. She and her husband and their 10-year-old baby had been thrown out of their car when they were broadsided. Mm. And uh, she ended up being in a coma for many months. And when she came out of the coma, she was paralyzed from the maybe the shoulders down or something like that. Oh, my gosh. So um, at the time I knew her, she had a three-year-old daughter. And the three-year-old daughter was sitting on her lap in a wheelchair. And so I was taking all sorts of photographs of them. And I wanted to do a portrait of her to show her strength and her determination and her beauty. And I tried many different times. And I just couldn't come up with something that I liked. And so finally, one day out of desperation, I took another portrait that I had done of another woman. And I turned it upside down. And I started to paint this woman over the top of it. And I found that there was something redemptive and something powerful about fighting against this other image. So my choices were being based not on a white canvas, but they were based on what fit into the context of this old image. 
So it was like I was, in a sense, redeeming the past, which is kind of the way I thought about her life. And forever after that, when I painted, I would always try to either redeem an old painting that way, or I would try to start with some sort of chaos on the canvas and then find the meaning in the chaos in order to draw the image out. And uh, <clears throat> so that's that's the redemptive part of it. The other thing that made me think about when you're talking about the blues is when I was in my 30s, before I was a Christian, actually it was when I was turning 30, I went through a period of angst, which I didn't realize had anything to do with turning 30, but somebody finally woke me up to it. Oh, because <laughs> you're turning 30, that's yeah, why you're feeling yeah, this way. Yeah. I started writing music. I wrote quite a bit of music and I actually went to Nashville to uh, promote it. <laughs> oh, wow. Excellent. But um, I went to four different studios and the basic message I got from all of them was this music is too, um, too intellectual for people because you're, we're we're trying to sell music to Nathan Nasal and his wife who are living in a trailer and she's got her <laughs> hair up in rollers while they drink their six pack of beer. And you're using words like silhouette <laughs> and it's not going to work. <laughs> but anyway, one of the songs that I wrote was a blues number. And uh, you, you I, won't, place I won't sing it for you, but I'll yeah. tell you the words. <laughs> Time is a quiet river, relentless as a dream, carrying me forward no matter how hard I scheme. If I tarry to the right or I tarry to the left, this ever rolling stream. No, if I tarry to the left or I tarry to the right, this ever rolling stream is going to carry me into the night. So find a good road and follow it along. Um, try to spend, try to live your whole life through standing clean and strong. The auctioneer will guarantee you'll find your pot of gold, but time is a commodity that can't be bought and sold. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I do. But I but I see in that the effort to to feel I'm, I'm trying to find my son. My son is uh, is a musician and writes great, great songs. I'll, I'll share some with you. But that's you know, that's an that's a cathartic uh, kind of that's a meaningful thing. And it's 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 got the combination of both, you know, kind of doing something real with the emotions that you're really feeling and at the same time you know kind of lifting it up and holding you know it's it's kind of worship in a way mm -hmm. well i probably won't be redoing the intro anytime soon because for me to learn how to do those things would take too much of my time away from <laughs> what i'm already doing yeah yep. but um i have great admiration for the people who know how to clip things and put them together <laughs> Yeah. Have a roll on their shows and all of that kind yeah. of stuff. We yeah. haven't gotten around to Matthew Siegel yet. I wonder if you oh, yeah. have time in the future, we can still talk about that. Yeah, I'm just kind of diving into that whole area, and I'm I'm really, you know, it's it was your channel that got me over to that, mm -hmm. and I'm 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 really trying to figure out the will for the uh, the uh, whitehead whitehead the 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 whitehead story and. I'm reading his book and I'm intrigued by it. It's it's very much in line with I didn't, you know, it's a whole little cul-de-sac of of thinking that I had not been exposed to before. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of your talking to him and I'm going to try to fool around with that for a while, I think. Yeah, I would, I would be interested in getting your, your perspective on it. Um, I've had kind of a love hate relationship with Whitehead partly because he's so hard to understand, yeah. I think. And what about uh, the general area of this process theology? Is well, that that's the whole you... thing. I went, yeah. I went after that for a while. I really looked into it quite a bit and part of it made me feel very uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. Because but, it's very, I don't know what you'd say. It's kind of certainly not down the mainstream of, of Christian yeah. thought. Yeah. Um, but then I, I did a, six episode series on uh, radical orthodoxy radical orthodoxy yeah Mil yes, john milbank Mil milbank right yeah i i've bumped into that a little bit because uh because i'm a fan of david uh, bentley hart who is he's kind of in that same he's adjacent to milbank yeah so um that helped me to see the idea of process theology through a slightly different lens Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that made me most uncomfortable about process theology, the idea that God changes, <clears throat> you know, yes, scripture they... says that he's the same today, yesterday and forever, mm -hmm. but change does not necessarily have to mean um, I mean, there's many different ways in which change in which we conceptualize change. Well, it's one of the found, foundational, uh, not paradoxes, but dualities in, in the Western tradition, right? Can't stick mm -hmm. your foot in the same river twice. Yeah. So uh, change implies, you know, change implies unity because you can't, um, if, if two things are entirely and completely unrelated, then there's no change there. So change is changing of one thing. It's it's an evolution of one thing. So this is where you know. So that's that's the duality there that that is not. Now, I hadn't heard that before. That change implies unity. That that's oh. really interesting. I mean, if you look at the the word that Heraclitus, well, the the two the you can't stick your foot in the same river twice. You couldn't even say that if you didn't see one river right so mm -hmm. so he's so that's the i think that's one of the things about heraclitus that people miss is that he's 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 thought of as the philosopher of flux and all of change and his his element is fire and and people think of him as that but he really is trying to show that duality that that both sides of that pole uh he uh, um the the unity and the change are kind of self-defining, I mean, inner, inner defining each, of each other. Well, another way that that works with rivers is that when, when torrential rains change the course of a river by changing, you know, by maybe pummeling the boundary of the river or, or opening up a new water course or mm -hmm. something like that, there's a sense in which the land has been not not only the river has been changed, but the land has been changed. And so it's it's their relationship to one another that's continually changing. 
So you have the rain, you have the bound the boundaries of the river, and you have the river itself. And <clears throat> we've had a number of conversations on my channel about the impassibility of God. But how can that, act, I mean, how can God be completely impassable if at the same time he takes our sorrows upon himself and he, um, he gives himself for us? He, he he's is a God. Somehow, he's a God of history. He's a God. He's somehow being changed by, by his relationship with us. But not not changed in the sense of. You could say his character doesn't change. Yes, yeah, you could yeah. say his character doesn't yeah. change, but he's allowing our impress upon himself. He says, "You are engraved upon the palms of my hands." Mm -hmm. So, so my impress is is upon him. The impress of my life and of my sin and of everything else is affecting him. So, yeah. So anyway, I think that whole thing about process theology, although the way many of them talk about it, I don't like it at all. So, yeah, it's 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 the avenue towards the the open theology yes. kind of movement, and uh, I'm not terribly interested in that particular dimension, you know, direction of it. Yeah, I, th I think that uh, your guy Siegel though is a little different than that. He's 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 more whitehead guy. He's I get he's more I don't know is he. Is he expressly a Christian? Do I know that or not? I don't know. I I don't think so. But yes, I, mean, he says I, Jewish I don't origin, know. Actually. I haven't yeah. I haven't asked him, but I yeah. have not. He's very articulate. I like I just like the so intelligent. So, so intelligent. Articulate. Yeah. Yeah. Very articulate. I like that kind of presentation of people who have really kind of honed their ability to talk and organize their thoughts clearly. And, uh, you know, um, he, I, I really appreciate that with him. David Bentley Hart is in a, in a way the same for me that way, even though he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and a little attitude sometimes. That, but, see, this is why I've never explored <laughs> David Bentley Hart yeah. because the way he talks to people, yeah, he's, for example, the way he talks about Jordan Peterson. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, he can be very snide and he uses his, he uses his eloquence and he'll turn it into a rapier and he can't resist it. He, he, you know, in some of his books, there's like paragraphs that are just very eloquent, you know, high levels of use of language. But if you're noticing what the message is, it's very kind of digging uh, on issues that he's very, uh, you know, kind of ready to be kind of snide and sarcastic about. You have to kind of get past that with him. That would, and be, if you, that would be hard for me. Yeah. Because, and if you're already not wanting, hard to understand yeah. and then to, to yeah. invest the time that it would take to get past all that. Yes. <laughs> it, it, that's something about him. You have to, you have to be forgiving of that. Um, and then you can get some stuff from him. But so. Well, before you go yep. about this issue of change, I just wanted yep. to bring up something that came up in uh I was reviewing for my conversation with Lucas about Austrian economics. I was reviewing a conversation that I had done with Sibylla and Ira, where each of us represented a book. She represented um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Metaphysics of Quality. I represented Maps of Meaning and Ira represented Human Action or Austrian Economics. And we were talking about a series that Robert Breedlove and Mike Hill had done about the metaphysics of quality, which was just an excellent series. 
And in there, they had this little graphic with change, action, and value kind of forming this, this triad that moves in a circle. Change, action, and value. Value. Okay. And they were saying that change is the first thing, and then that change precipitates action, and then action builds value. But we were saying value has to come first because without value, there's no there's no motion that's going to result in change. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson is always saying you have to have you have to have some guiding value above you to guide yourself forward through the field of infinite possibility, or you just stand immobilized at the threshold, which I take to be the same thing as having a boundary, having a boundary condition. condition right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, um, Whitehead has the, you know, kind of tries to, and I'm again, I'm just really starting into this, but I think that what I'm hearing is, is that he uses the kind of or, organic uh metaphor uh which i think is a which i think can be useful there like uh you know if you think about a a, a plant or a rose um you know you really can't understand it you're not grasping it you're not knowing what it is if you're not seeing its entire temporal evolution you know from from its you know beginning to the bud to the you know blossom etc you're not really under even though you may see it or engage with it at one instant what you're really seeing there is the entire arc of that of that change and it's the change here is not uh entirely un uh guided un un um framed because it's obviously an organism that's constrained by its own uh essence its own uh temporal path that it's ultimately going to be on through its through its you know through what it is uh and and so you have then again that, that Heraclitus thing where you have the change, but it's but it's in a unity. It's in a it's in a single entity, if you will. Well, I think the part that I get a little uncomfortable with with Whitehead, or with what I hear him say, I haven't read Whitehead. Yeah, I've only read about so him. Okay. Yeah. So what I hear people saying is that there's this idea that God is. for lack of a better way of putting it, trying to find himself. <laughs> the way he finds himself is through through creating and then uh, the evolution of, of life mirroring back to him who he is and that in, in a sense he is evolving into himself. I have a problem with that because for me, a rose... Yes, it starts with a seed and it grows into a rose, but before it grows in before it starts as a seed, there is a rose. And that rose has the seed, and then that seed grows into a rose. And so that you always start right. with a hole somewhere, and then that hole is recreated through through some process, but you always start with the hole. So to say that God is somehow evolving from particles or whatever you know like e even a lot of scientists talk about that where they say and i think whitehead uh, is uh, that's i understand whitehead the same way you described and he wants to kind of rather than save the appearances he wants to save natural science in a certain sense he wants to somehow describe the whole show um and 
not jettison natural science in his elaboration of what he envisions God to be. Um, and, and that's how, yeah, I think you're right about that. I, well, I, I don't think it's necessary to, yeah. to do that though, yeah, in I, order I to save natural sciences. I mean, I, I think that there's a much clearer path, which I think yeah. is through this whole idea of principles rather than rules. So mm -hmm. we can talk about that another time. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's plan on it. Yeah. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk and I've I've really enjoyed getting to know all the people that we've bumped into in this corner and Chino and uh, and you in particular so I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Yeah, Chino was amazing. I you know, if we do this again, I hope people show up. I heard that there's going to be another one in Israel in mm. February, but I don't know yeah. if that's true. So Not possible for me probably, but um, that would be that yeah. would be glorious that yeah. would be a big trip for sure yeah. okay well thank you thank you dr jim karen we'll thanks a lot soon. i appreciate it okay. thanks again bye-bye bye-bye